I'd like for you to open your Bible to the Psalms, Psalms 11 and verse 3. Psalms 11 and verse 3. One of those classic verses that pops up many times in sermons or as points of a sermon. It's a question that we have to answer. It's at least a question that we as Christians need to deal with. And the question is, if the foundations be destroyed, what will the righteous do? Now, just thinking about that for a moment, it's obvious that whatever is meant here by righteousness doesn't have much of an effect if the foundation is flawed or if the foundation is destroyed. There's a point to be made about that if we're not founded in the right way, then the question is, what can we do? Let alone the question, what are we supposed to do? But if the foundations be destroyed, how can we stand? What are we going to do? The major question is, what is meant here by the foundation? Because it said, if the foundation is destroyed, and we're all standing on something. Something supports us or we don't stand. Are you with me? I mean, we'll get to it in a minute, but remember the house on the sand and the house on the rock? One stood, one fell. We're all located in one of two places. All of us. We're either standing because of something that is supporting us, or we think we're standing, we just haven't been shoved off course yet. But we're standing somewhere. And if the foundation that I think I'm standing on, if it gets destroyed in some way, that's a curious question too. How can that be? But if it is destroyed, then what in this life am I going to do? What can I do? Let alone what am I supposed to do? Let's talk about the foundation for just a moment. Technically and Academically, a foundation simply supports what is built on it. It supports a structure. You wouldn't have much of a house if you didn't build it on a foundation. You've got to dig a foundation first. Or as Jesus, in one of his messages, he said, he dig deep. You dig deep because you've got to make sure your foundation is right. I've always likened it to being a repentant person, having gone through true biblical repentance. Because if you don't start there, then whatever else you do will be wrong. You'll think it's right, but it won't work. God won't bless it and honor it. You'll flounder and flop through your Christian life and wonder the rest of your life why things don't work well for you. Everybody that comes to Christ has to come to him with a heart that has sorrow over sin. That's initially what you have to do. That doesn't describe what a foundation is, but that's how you start. A foundation, again, is what supports whatever is built on it. You've got to have a foundation. It's the start of a building. It's where we all begin. So we ask ourselves, does the Bible define what this foundation is? And it does in the New Testament. So if you will keep your finger in Psalms 11, we'll come back in a moment. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 11, where Paul writes concerning this foundation. He said, for other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is what? Jesus Christ. And then the very next verse tells you that on that you build, you grow, and you become. But if you try to grow or build or become without him being the foundation, the motivation and the reason for living the way you're supposed to live, if you don't do it that way, you're just a religious person. About all you have is a religious routine, a religious place a religious building with religious exercising. We'll preach the word. We'll have responsive readings. We'll have the Sunday school class. We'll have all the things that go with it. I'm not saying all of those are wrong. I'm just saying you'll have all of those things, but that's all you got. And when it comes to issues in life, the best you can do in that environment is to wish and to hope. 
because most people have been talked out of their faith, whatever it is. And so what they're founded on really is like sifting sand. It lets them down in the times of trouble because the only thing that is immovable is Christ. He is the solid rock. We sing that song, he's a rock, he's a rock, not sinking sand. So Paul describes the foundation that we're on as Jesus Christ. It's the only foundation that we have. Now, I don't want to bore you with keep talking about the foundation and things of that sort, but I do want to say this, that a lot of people are trying to live a religious life and do great things or become or impress or something, motivational technique, whatever they are, without ever beginning at Jesus Christ. You see, repentance is because as you look at him and what he said, you have totally failed him, let him down, and you've been his adversary. You've been at enmity with him. And you realize it was such a bad and wrong thing to do that you're overwhelmed with this godly sorrow. Oh, God. And then you turn away from the way you've been living and standing, and you turn to him, and you are placed in Christ by this work of the Holy Spirit. And then it's like Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, being rooted and grounded and abounding and so forth. That's the basis for our lives. If I'm just a good Baptist, a good Methodist, or a good whatever other name that man has given to his system, if that's all I am, that's all I got. If I don't have Christ, if I don't start there, I have nothing. It's a personal encounter with Jesus Christ. I'm going to keep saying that the rest of my life because I'm not sure how many people I've stood before for 40 years that acted like Christians. I don't know how many of them were. Don't know how many of them are. But I do believe if you keep hammering on people's headpiece, that's your head, your mind, if you keep hammering away with the truth, God's going to touch hearts with it. You got to hear the word to know what's right and what's wrong. And again, if you're in a religious system, if you're a traditional person and you're so embedded into the religions of man, chances are you won't ever turn from it. You take anybody that's a staunch Catholic, for example, they're so ingrained in a system that they like, that costs nothing, requires nothing, you can't change them. Very seldom ever. And I'll say this too, once you get a man grounded in Jesus Christ, he begins to taste and see that the Lord is good. He won't give that up either. But now we got a problem here because if Jesus Christ is our foundation, you can't destroy Jesus, can you? So how can we make this work? He said, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? I'm going to use the word believer for righteous because we're talking about the same thing. I'm going to talk about the foundation of believers. Because if Jesus is our foundation, you can't destroy him. You can't conquer him and rule him out. That is, as who he is and what he is. What do we do with this Psalms 11 and verse 3 that says, if the foundation be destroyed, well, if you can't destroy Jesus, then what are we talking about? What are we talking about? Well, I would say it like this. To the degree that you have a revelation of Jesus Christ and a desire to live by it is to the degree that you are founded and you are strong and you are stable. Now, anybody can come in here. Anybody can go to church. Anybody can attend meetings. Anybody can sing the hymns. And if you're in one of those lively places, you can clap your hands, you can dance, and you can run, and you can prophesy. You can do all of those things and yet not have much of a revelation of Jesus Christ. You also are in a Pentecostal system. You like that. It's fun, and it's exciting, and we make a lot of noise and all of that. You know, you can do that without being grounded very well. Do you know that a lot of places really don't preach Jesus? They use his name. But like Paul said, they preach another Jesus. They don't preach the Bible Jesus. They preach another Jesus. 
Another Jesus has a way that is a lot easier and less demanding than the way of Jesus. You cannot be a Christian and think about Jesus and hear about him and stay tuned into him all the time without being continually convicted about something in your life. There's always something there. You're never the place where Jesus says, well, I don't need to do anything else with you. I don't think you get to that in this life. Because he is always searching, always putting his word there. Now, there are people who don't want to hear that much, and you know what I'm talking about. There are people who find excuses not to pay attention. There are some subjects in the Bible, in the Sermon on the Mount, that people don't want to hear. They tend to be busy on that night or that day. Or they tend to be easily distracted in a meeting when that subject comes up because they really, they really don't want to be grounded that firm in something that just is, is don't like this. So to the degree that the revelation of Jesus Christ has come to your heart, as much of it as you have received, that is the limit of how strong you can be, how stable you're going to be in this life. 30, 60, 100 fold. There are different degrees of commitments in the church. Some just get by, it seems. Some don't want more, and yet there's those who seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness because they have an earnest, zealous desire to do right, to know right, and to live right. Now, in that way, Christ is their foundation. You can have as much and you can ground yourself in as much of Jesus as you want to. This is a free country. It's a time of peace. You've got 24 hours of every day. You've got weekends. You've got church twice a week. You've got comfort. You can learn. You can go. You can deal with as much stuff as you want to. And to the amount that all of that activity is operating in your life, that's the degree of the foundation that you have. That's your foundation. Some have a lot. Some don't. Some want more. Some don't. Is it not true that some are strong in the faith and some are weak in the faith? Doesn't it say that? Why are some people strong and some people weak in the same church? It's because some want more. Some are more earnest. Some are more desiring to live in this life in a way that pleases Jesus. Now, all of this that I've just said is the degree of your foundation. If you're easily thrown off course, if people talk you out of things and you whimper and cry a lot, you may have really come to Christ, but you haven't done much about building on it. Remember he said, if any man build on this foundation, you don't know everything you ought to know. You're not as far as you ought to be when God saves you. He didn't save you to sit back and take your ease and just wait for the rapture. You got to start building. You got to start tearing down walls of resistance that you've had all your life against him. We learned it in the world. He begins to deal with us. The word of God comes forth like a trumpet, like a hammer, like fire. And man, it gets inside in your little closets and all your little private beliefs and it starts dealing with everything in there and either you let go of it or you won't. You may be well grounded in the Lord or you may be one of those weak souls that just cannot stay up all the time. You fall over anything. Why? Because that's all apparently you wanted. Some people will tell you, I've got Jesus. I hope you do. But more than that, I hope he has you. I hope he has you. A lady one time years ago, I think she might have been maybe a little bit irritated at my insistence on this narrow way. I didn't write this book. It just has to be something that God did in my heart a long, long time ago. I don't know any other way to say it. If this is what he said, this is what we say. If this is what he wants, this is what we insist on that we must want. If he said this is the way to go, then we have to say this is the only way to go. There is no other way. And people, and you know what I'm saying when I say this, people don't like it that way. 
because in this modern era that we're in of fun and games and ease and comfort and happiness, people want an easy way. They want an entertaining way. If you say something hard, water it down with a little joke. Because there's something inside of me. I want heaven and all the benefits of the believer on this earth. But this seeking first the kingdom of God and, and carrying this cross every day, I don't, that's not, I don't know. I might lose a lot of friends. You will lose a lot of them. But it's a choice you have to make. I don't know how big your foundation is. I don't know how strong you're standing. But I can tell you this. If this foundation... What I just described, your belief system and the degree of intensity and desire and zeal that you have. If somebody can destroy this, and it can be, what are you going to do? What can you do without Christ? You say, well, how can such a thing be destroyed? Well, back in the Psalms, Psalms 11, which was probably written when David was fleeing from Saul, And when he fled from Saul, they were in conflict with each other. David, the priest of Biathar, gave him the showbread because they were hungry. They were faint. And he gave it to them and his men, and they ate it, and they went on their way. And then later on, when Saul found out that the priest gave this food to David and his men, he killed the priest. Saul had no regard for the law, for the way of God, for the priesthood, no respect, no fear. I think David probably wrote, he said, Lord, why am I fleeing like a bird to the mountains in verse 1? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they might privately shoot at the upright in heart. The upright in heart. Verse 5, he said, the Lord tries the righteous, but the wicked in him that loves violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked shall he rain snares, fire, and brimstone. Verse 7, for the righteous Lord loveth righteousness. His countenance doth behold the upright. So there's a picture here of wickedness. God hates wickedness and apparently wicked people. Unless I'm reading the end of verse 5 wrong. But the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Does your Bible say that? Is there wickedness in the church? I think there is kind, educated, well-heeled wickedness in the church. Soft-spoken, heady wickedness in the church. Here we go again, same thing every week. Well, it might be the same thing every week because you're living in a time in which what I'm saying is becoming prevalent. As I've said before, I've got to give an account for y'all. I don't want to lose nobody. I don't want anybody to get drug away with his eyes wide open either. And if you're not taught, if you don't make a distinction between the clean and the unclean, as he said in Ezekiel 28, if we don't declare what is right and what is wrong, and then the enemy comes in and snatches them away, God says, I will hold their blood on your head. And I don't want that. If you're going to quit, you're going to quit with your eyes open. But that's your choice. So what can the righteous do if these foundations are destroyed? Because it appears that it's the wicked, in some degree of definition, it's the wicked that are destroying these foundations. What's he talking about? Is there wickedness in the church? Go again to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. There is wickedness in the church. You are labeled in a community or in Christian circles if you come against this kind of stuff, against, well, what we're talking about here. Verse 11, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, can he? Now, look at that verse. Can he get an advantage of you? Now, before you say, uh not me, well... Now, he said us. Now, Paul wrote us, and Paul was a little bit further along than we are. He said, lest Satan should get an advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. We're not ignorant of his devices. What are his devices? The word devices is a mental word. 
It's a word that has to do with manipulation of the mind. Does the Bible say that he beguiled Eve through his subtlety? He just sizes up to you and talks on your terms, on your level. If you're cool, he talks cool. If you're heady, he talks heady. If you're some academic somebody, he talks like that. The devil's more wise and clever than any of us. He knows where you have failed in the past because he's the author who promoted your failure and your foolishness and everything else you did wrong. He's behind all of it. And he knows if you don't have a heart to follow after the Lord, but you're a religious person, he's going to lead you to a place where you're not going to hear anything. Oh, they're going to read from the Bible. They're going to do that, but they're not going to take you anywhere with it. They're not going to show you anything. They're not going to demand anything from you. Nothing's going to happen. Because he's going to leave you dry. But that's what he does. How would you do that in church? For example, years ago, my pastor told me back in Charlestown. He said he knows a lot of young men that went to seminary because they really wanted to preach. Apparently, they'd had a a wonderful conversion experience, and their heart was full of a desire to take the message to a congregation and preach the word to them and to see them have the similar experience that they had had to be saved and to feel good and just, oh, man, and just want more of this. And they figured if I go to a seminary, then I can learn all the things I need to learn, and I can grow and be much better equipped to share this truth with all these people. He said, I believe a lot of men went to seminary with these kind of desires. He said, but it wasn't long after they got in the liberal seminary that he was in Lexington, Kentucky, in the Christian church. He said, it wasn't long after you got in that liberal institution that all these eager little minds begin to be slowed down, watered down, because they begin to make fun of miracles in the Bible. They begin to poke fun at all the things the Bible declares, you know, like the Red Sea, Jericho, or the Ark, Noah's Ark, and they begin to call them myths. And they were so intelligent, and they'd done it for many years anyway, they were so intelligent in crucifying the Word that you felt as a new person in the Lord, what are you going to say against these people? And yet their words were having this devastating effect on eroding what they started with so that it no longer was there. Some church sponsored these people probably to go to seminary and they felt like they couldn't quit, but they began to give in to this, this professor so smart. Man, he knows so much. And he talked them out of the word. The professor's name was Jesse James. And he was a robber and a thief. And he robbed these young men of their zeal and turned them away from a living Christ into a a dead religion until the word of God doesn't mean what it says because it's been copied and recopied and we don't have any original copies so there's no way to know what has been added to the Bible or what has been taken away and in in times of duress and difficulty I'm sure they erased some things and added some things so you know the Bible as they say contains the word of God but it is not the word of God Some things are the word of man. So we need to just take it for what it is. It is a word which God uses to bring forth a moral betterness and social goodness. And back in those days, we call it the social gospel. Because it was not a gospel that made saints. It just made you a better person in the community. And that's really all the church wanted. The church I got saved in, when I got saved, when I got goosebumps about God. And I began to live this way, upset the whole herd of them. You know why? Because many years ago, somewhere, one of those preachers there, I think it's verse 14 in this book, 2 Corinthians 11, one of those preachers there had talked these folks out of the word. They hired this seminary preacher. This preacher came in from the seminary a young fellow, hopefully handsome, 
You don't mind looking at him. He didn't weigh 800 pounds and you felt sorry for him. It's just somebody that you hope had a degree of dignity about him and had a little class and was able to do all the things and make everybody happy. It didn't matter if he preached as long as he don't preach it like we got to do it. Don't make it necessary to do what the Bible says. Just tell us what the Bible says and then keep on going. Because when you get fed that when you're a child, chances are when you get big and nothing changes, you get so stagnant and dead that nobody can change you. You're just dead. What kind of people would come in a church and do that? What kind of professor in seminaries would preach that trash to those young preachers? Who would do that? Well, are you there in 2 Corinthians 11? Would you look over there for just a minute? 2 Corinthians 11, you were in chapter 3. Verse 13, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. How can they do that? Because they act like apostles. They imitate apostles. They listen to apostles and then repeat what apostles said with their slant so that you will believe what they're telling you because they act like everybody else has acted. And no marvel What's it say in verse 14? For Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. How can this be? Could a preacher be an angel of light, but be of the wicked one? Is it not true that if we talk you out of the truth, that we are not of God? He that is of God is of the truth. If I talk you out of the truth, I'm not of God. Well, I wonder in Christian circles, how many of the conservative, fundamental, I mean, Schofield Bible people, King James Leatherbound, 1611 King James, how many of those men in their quest to be strong in the Lord have talked multitudes of their people out of healing? They talk about the Holy Spirit. They don't have the Holy Spirit. They have a system. When you get the Holy Spirit, you'll talk in tongues. You'll talk in other tongues. See how controversial we already are? You can talk about anything you want to, but if you're going to stay with this book, these signs shall follow those that believe. And the second thing he mentions, they shall speak in new tongues. And how they talk them out of that, I don't know. But there's bunches of people in these traditional fundamental churches that will fight Nash, ridicule and speak evil of this truth. It's an evil situation sponsored by an evil ministry. Now, I've said it. You know, when you tell me the gifts of the Spirit are not for today, or you tell your congregation, now, if you speak in tongues, don't do it here. We don't want to hear anything God has to say that way. Well, why in the world would I go there? Why would anybody go? Because it's exciting. It's interesting, and there's a lot of people here, and, and it's fun. There's a lot of humor and plenty of things to do. It's not Jesus you're after. It's yourself. It's me doing it my way, wanting it my way. And I got a preacher up there that tells me that's all right. You're going to heaven no matter what you do. If you held your hand up at a meeting, if you <clears throat> cleared your throat and said yes, you're going to heaven. You don't have to live right. You don't have to do right. You don't have to talk right. You can drink, do drugs, and fornicate, and you're going to heaven. That is a lie. And the people who say that are liars. It's wickedness. It's wickedness. And we're living in a day in which we're so politically correct, tuned in, we don't feel like we ought to say anything about anything. I don't have the luxury. 
If you see a wolf coming, you say, there's a wolf coming. Brother Hamilton, now how do you know it's a wolf? Because he looks like one, he talks like one, he growls like one, he snaps like one, he chews like one. He is one. When you begin to tell me that holiness is an option in this life, you've missed it. Now, the exception to all of this is if you missed it honestly. You just didn't know any better. That's the way you were taught, and you haven't learned it yet. A lot of people are honestly wrong and honestly off. I bet this room's full of people that have had to change your beliefs through the years. We didn't know any better, but now we do because the word came, light came. Teach me thy way, O Lord, that, uh, that the what? I may walk in thy truth, and then when I start walking in thy truth, what happens? Somebody talks me out of it. Well, we don't do that here. Why not? Y'all clap your hands when you praise the Lord? We don't do that here. It's in the Bible. Well, we still don't do it. Well, y'all wash feet? You mean like human feet? Oh, no, no, oh, no. Why not? It's in the Bible. Well, you know, you're just a troublemaker. No, I just want an answer. Y'all speak in tongues here? No. Y'all believe in the gifts of the Spirit? No. You don't believe in prophecy? You believe in a word of knowledge? Word of wisdom? You're surely okay with wisdom and knowledge, aren't you? You don't do that either? Well, I can see. When you come in and you begin to change what Jesus said, a word which he said alone was necessary. When you start taking the meaning of that out, you take the hammer, the fire, and the sword out of it, and it's just a meaningless word that we practice because of the way we've been raised, we have no foundation. If we don't have a foundation, what do we do when the devil comes? Doesn't it say in Ephesians 6 that we are in a war? It says in Ephesians 6 we're in a war. We wrestle. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We have an unseen foe out there that we are fighting, and this is the war that we're in. And this devil that we're fighting often comes in the form of an angel of light of all things. He comes in with a smile on his face. He talks about Jesus. He's on a thousand radio stations a day. He talks about Jesus, talks about the second coming of Jesus. He talks about all these kind of things, and we're sitting there disarmed. Back in the late 80s and the early 90s, a turbulent time in the faith camp, it was a time called the prophetic movement, the prophetic movement. It was the so-called time when God was restoring prophets to the church for direction. And some went so far as to say that without a prophet in or over your church, you really don't have in time direction. For God's new light comes through this move of the prophets. So I was sent a tape. I like to hear what these prophets say. I don't want to miss anything. I don't want to miss it. So I get a hold of one of the tapes on the prophets, and among other things that were said was that, you know, a prophet, when he's learning and so forth, his prophecies may not always be accurate. <laughs> so he can prophesy whatever he wants to, and he might get it right. He'll get some of it right. I see this morning that you have shoes on. Well, that's pretty good. Just this morning, as you were beginning to brush your teeth, you begin to think about the needs in your life, and you begin to realize that you need to get a hold of this plan, and you start talking. Well, you're bound to get most of that right. It happens all the time. So you have this devil who comes in, and he's called the destroyer, and he's called the tempter. And his whole purpose is to come in the form of a man and say to you with a smile on his face and a nice look and a loving way about him, hath God said? Is that really what God said? 
And you begin to take your focus off of what this man is saying, and you begin to look at the man as, oh, man, what a tender soul he is. But, you know, fine, he might be tender, but what's he saying? Then these prophets came along. One of them began to poke fun at the faith message. Mentioned his aspirin. Oh, I forgot y'all, y'all believe in something like healing. And I thought, whoops. I hit the off button. I said, now behind that initial little ha 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 at the faith message, there is a coming move to talk you out of your faith. Instead of you just trusting in God, you lean to the prophet, and the prophet will begin to give you direction as what you ought to do. Then there's another prophetic movement that I knew of in another part of the country. It was they call the head prophet Papa. And but they wanted to know what they're supposed to do. They had to go to Papa and get direction. And I remember thinking at the time, this is a residue of the early 70s shepherding movement. Because in those days, you had to have an elder. You had to have a shepherd. Now, I agree with that, but the shepherd's job was to direct traffic. I mean, he would tell you if you could move a place, you go do this, go there, what vacation. I mean, you had to ask him if you could do all of this. That's what they call submission to your elder. One of them said, you obey him even if he's wrong. Ding! I'll just say it the way I'm going to say it. There's something wicked about a statement like that. There's something wicked that is misleading Turning away from God, the effect of it, that's wicked. In a nice man, funny. You oh, you submit to your man, even if he's wrong. I heard that and I thought, I don't think so. I don't think so. And these prophets came along and I began to hear them prophesy and begin to get more and more prophets because they were getting popular and suddenly prophets came from everywhere. They began prophesying and saying things and you're supposed to follow them. In 1990, I remember saying in back in those days in the little faith camp that I grew up in spiritually, these people are going to do more damage in this little camp. They're going to do more damage than anything that's ever happened before. And they scattered today where just a few people left. They follow after dreams and prophets and movements. Every time a movement comes... In my life, in my experience, I've seen movements. I've seen the shepherding thing, the, the false faith things, the no trials thing. I've seen the deliverance thing come in the 80s. Then the prophetic move came in the 80s and 90s. Then not too long ago, an attempt at apostolic movement. The apostolic movement meant that, man, you had to have an apostle over your church for he's the one who hears from God for you. And if your church is without an apostle, your church is not spiritually covered. And I thought, this is the same old dumb spirit that was in the shepherding movement. And yet, people loved it so because the ones who preached this misled these people. That's wicked. That is wicked. And I'll tell you all something. God hates wickedness. Anything that would turn a soul away from him to something else that he's against but looks good, God says that's wickedness, and he hates that. What did Jesus tell the Pharisees? He said, you compass, you traverse, you go around looking for converts, and you make a proselyte. You make a convert. And you indoctrinate your convert like churches do. And you tell them you can't do that and you can't do that. Avoid that kind of stuff. Just have a good time. Love Jesus and be happy. And after you do all of those kind of things, what do you have? You have nothing. Zero. And we're living in the hour in which people are being talked out of their faith. You know, people don't talk about faith anymore. Just like politically today, nobody ever mentions the promised land. Because America, as far as I'm concerned, I think America is afraid of Islam. I think we're afraid we're going to offend those people by saying the truth. We're afraid to say in pulpits what needs to be said for fear of sounding like we're know-it-alls. 
And we just don't want to tell people what we ought to be telling them because of what people might think of us. We should be more concerned about what Jesus thinks. But these angels of light, ministers of darkness, they come to congregations that have been turned away from the truth, and they're so gullible, and they're so easy. All you have to do is smile and do a few little things and act like this, and everybody just loves you. They don't know what you're saying. I'm listening to one whole series, one, one of these prophets once. And that was all I needed to know, that behind this whole movement is a dark spirit. And all these movements, so far, every single one of them have failed. Which one was God behind? As far as I'm concerned, he wasn't behind any of them. His truth was in all of them. They said a lot of right things in every one of these things, but there wasn't anything there. People are allowed in churches because people are not taught well. They don't know the truth. They can't make distinction. Turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 22. Ezekiel 22. They can't make distinction between the right and the wrong. They don't know how. They don't know. They're not sure. Ezekiel 22 and verse 28 tell you how wicked man can be. Listen to me. This chapter tells you how wicked people get because of the wicked people who trained and taught them. They are the fruit of a ministry, and God had to judge them all. Are you all hearing me? Verse 28, and her prophets, we could just, for the sake of this message, call these preachers. Let me say that. And her preachers have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity, and divining lies into them, saying, Thus saith the Lord, when the Lord has not spoken. The people of the land, therefore, have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and the needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. What is untempered mortar? Because that was a problem. Those of you that are familiar with the construction world and ways you lay concrete or brick or rocks, you have to have something between the rocks and the bricks and the stones to keep them from falling off. You know what I mean? And you know what you put there? You put mortar there. Mortar is a mixture of some sort, which when it hardens, it holds. You have to have it pliable in the beginning so you can get everything settled in, the brick and all of that and the stones and the blocks. And when it hardens, it holds everything fast. It won't fall over. The wind can blow it and it won't fall. The mortar becomes a foundation for stableness and sureness and steadfastness. And he said in verse 28, he said, the prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar. One commentary said it is used to describe oracles and takes on the sense of useless, misleading, even foolish things. When you build your church together, and you use untempered mortar, you are setting people in place with something that will not keep them in place and hold them fast. The first time something new comes along, they'll fall over and follow something new. They're not sure and steadfast. Let me ask you, concerning this word foolish, I just read as a definition. How foolish today is a Halloween party? Now, how foolish is a Halloween party dressing children up like the devil or your little girl like a little witch and have skeletons hanging everywhere with a haunted house and you're supposed to scare your children so they'll have at least one nightmare next week? Now, how foolish is that? How foolish is it to take things we're told to avoid and then make a game and make fun out of it? Who taught us that? Who tells people this is okay? Who said it's all right for a church to have a St. Valentine's party? We call it the Restoration Marriage Weekend. And what we're going to do is for the week, the man is going to take his wife out at least once, and uh, everybody will buy his wife a gift. If you can afford a big gift, fine, or you can buy her a box of candy or 
It's just something that came from you. Don't give her money, but go look for it. It takes time to look for cards. You've got to read a bunch of them. You've got to put yourself into purchasing gifts and cards. So you do all of that, and you give that to your wife, which is an expression of my care and concern. And then at the end of the week, when we've been just really good, then we're going to have a St. Valentine's dance. And we're going to get together. I don't know how to dance. Bonnie used to dance, but how foolish is that? And if you dance with your wife, you ask your brother, can I dance with your wife? You shouldn't. Why would you dance in the first place? What about all these weddings I hear about and after it's over, they go to dance and after it's over. Who taught you that? I'm getting off set, but let me say this while I'm at it, while it's hot. I went to a wedding one time years ago, years ago, 110 years ago. It was a nice wedding, and everybody did everything. It was very nice. And then when they said, I do, and they turned to meet the crowd, somebody hit the speaker system. I feel good. Like I know that I should. And the guy I was sitting with, I said, you don't do that junk here. I left. That's not God. That's foolish. But it's fun. It didn't offend anybody because they've already gotten past being offended at error and wrong. We learn to tolerate stuff. We tolerate it. Just want to get along. We don't want to be strict and narrow. We just want to get along. Come on, man. That's what the ecumenical movement is about. It's lay down your doctrines and your creeds and things you're standing on and believing God the way you've been raised spiritually. Put all that aside because you might be offensive to somebody. Let's just get along. That's religion. That's religion. My foundation doesn't tolerate that. I hope yours doesn't. The mortar that God has set us on, turn to chapter 13 of Ezekiel. He speaks of it over here too, chapter 13 and verse 10. Even because they have seduced my people. That's a biblical word, isn't it? Who would do that? Look at me. What kind of a human being would try to spiritually seduce, take advantage of you all? Would it be to get money? Is it about money? Probably. Is it about being famous or fame or advancing yourself some way? That's wicked. That is W-I-C-K-E-D, wicked. For a man to do that, knowingly do that, but that's what an angel of light would do. That's what a minister of darkness would do. They have seduced my people saying, peace, and there was no peace. And one built up a wall, lo, others daubed it with untempered mortar. Now, the wall is man's way. They built up a wall the way they want it, the way that it seemed to work best for them, and they daubed it with untempered mortar. So here's what God said. Say, say unto them which daub it with untempered mortar that it shall fall, and there shall be an overflowing shower, and ye, O great hailstones, shall fall, and a stormy wind shall rend it. Lo, when the wall is fallen, shall it not be said unto you, where is the daubing wherewith you have daubed it? He talks about it in verse 14. So I will break down the wall that you have daubed. This is the traditional denominational systems in America and the world. The systems of men that people who have itching ears run to. I hope you take that right. That's what the Bible says. Verse 14, so I will break down the wall that you have daubed with untempered mortar and bring it down to the ground so that the foundation thereof shall be discovered. That's how foundations are destroyed. They're not right when they're constructed, or the people are standing on something fabricated by man or religious system and not of God, and it falls. Everything that man builds that people trust in will fall. And it's not popular today to go all the way, like you said in verse 15. 
I will accomplish my wrath upon the wall and upon those that daubed it with untempered mortar. God uses that word a lot. Untempered mortar. Let me ask you this. The foundation you're on, is it Christ? Are your feet set in tempered mortar that has firmly fixed you there? Are you steadfast? What does he say? Steadfast and unmovable? The Greek word means not likely to be thrown off course. Why? Because you have, like the Berean church, you search the scriptures to see if what you're hearing is true. I'm not going to believe anything you say because you said it. I don't care how classy you are. If what you speak is not according to this word, Isaiah 8, 20 said, it's because you have no light. And if what you're preaching to me is personal darkness, a misapplication of truth, a mistranslation is distorting the word of God. If you're giving me that and making me think it's okay to live sinfully and all of that, you're not only wicked, but you're preaching darkness. And if the light in me, the way I see to go, if the light in me is darkness, how dark is this whole thing? When the Bible speaks of people stumbling around like blind men, what do you think he meant? They have eyes to see, but what? They can't see. They have ears to hear, but what? Because if they could see and they could hear, God said they would be converted and I would heal them. Heal them. I would heal them. Well, that goes back to something that if you will allow me to, to go back into Psalms 11. He talked twice here in verse 2. The end of that verse is the upright in heart. And at the end of verse 7, the last word of the psalm was the word upright. Now, this word, this same word upright was used, talking about healing now, this was used in Exodus 15 and 26. You remember the verse that says that if you will diligently hearken to the Lord your God and give heed to all of his commandments and walk in all the way that I command you this day, then I, the Lord, will heal you. Remember, he said, I am Yahweh Raphael or Rophikah. Turn back there. I keep trying to quote this, and I'll get it wrong. So I want you to turn back. I just want to show you one word, and then we'll go back to Psalms 11. Exodus 15, 26. We're thinking about the word upright in Psalm 11, used twice, upright. And this is what it says in Exodus 15, 26 with this word. If you will hearken to the voice of the Lord your God, and here it comes, and will do that which is right in his sight. He ends by saying, I will heal you. Let me ask you a question. Then is one of the conditions for healing being upright? Well, let me read it again. I don't want you to get this wrong. And the Lord said, if you, choice you have to make, if you will really pay attention to the voice of the Lord your God, whether audibly or the one he speaks to you when you're alone and quiet, that still small voice. If you will hearken unto that and will do what is right in his sight and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, he said, I will put none of these diseases upon you that are put upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that heals you. You think of it. I come to hear your word. It comes through a man. Can't deny that. God put men on the earth to preach. Not all of them are from God. Some of them are. I have to make the choice. I have to make the distinction. So I hear what the preacher says. If the Bible confirms what the preacher says, I will believe it because the Bible says it. Thank you for telling me, but I'm going to believe it, not because you said it, but because the Bible says it. And so I begin to do that. I say, well, teach me the way of the Lord. And God, give me discernment. Isn't that still in the Bible? We must never lose that. We must always be willing to challenge our weaknesses, to be strong, and we hear things we're not sure of. I don't care who all's believing it. You find out what you believe. You find out what you believe. I used to run with the herd, and if I heard something said it was a doctrine or somebody taught it, I'd say it too because, well, a word came from it. I'm not going to say anything else because I've got too many people that be against me. One day, I think I grew up or matured to a different level. 
And I said, I don't even know if I know what I believe about that. And I began to search the scriptures for myself and saw what I think I saw. Everybody forsook me. Back then, I remember the song I sang once, Though none go with me, still I will follow. If you will show me where I'm wrong, I will heed it. But if you just give me ideas and so-and-so said it or they believed it or the latter rain, that's not good enough. If I don't live like this, what I'm telling you now, somebody's going to come along wiser than he should be. He's going to talk me out of the truth. He's going to tell me where all I'm wrong and why I'm wrong and, and why I need to just take it easy, drop back and quit being so narrow. And yet the Bible says you got to endure to the end. You don't endure to the end by not caring what you believe or not caring what anybody else believes. You've got to know what you believe. Amen. No wonder the devil wants to water down this word. No wonder he wants this word to be gray in your life. Why is it, I ask myself this, why is it that in years gone by some people were so zealous in the Lord? So zealous. Remember back in the old Clay Street Church? We had as many on Wednesday night as we did on Sunday morning. There was no difference. It's where God sent us, and we're there, preach the word. It was easy to preach because they were somewhat clamorous. And yet, down through the years, I've seen people who once I thought were pretty zealous have become pretty complacent, and they've gone silent and quiet. I'll say this, I didn't talk you out of the word. I have not told you to do that. I've never said that's all right. It's okay if you, you don't have to make all that noise. You've already done that once, you've, you've done your time. I never said that. This is the day the Lord has made. If that light is burning and shining inside of you, that's the way you live. If I'm dropping back and becoming weak and I'm beginning to faint, God sends some loving soul to tell me to wake up, brother. The night is coming when man can't work. Grip that plow a little tighter. We're coming down to the end. The home stretch is right in front of us. Make sure you get ready to go. Don't let the devil talk you out of the word. Quit listening to all these radio programs in which you hear all this. Well, you know, I don't agree with everything. Well, quit listening to it. Remember Paul one time said, you know who you've heard this from? He wasn't boasting of himself. He just simply said, look, I know I have the word. He said it so strongly one time. He says in Galatians 1, he said, if we or an angel from heaven or anybody else preaches to you anything different than we have preached to you, let him be anathema. Mm -hmm. Now today, folks will say, well, the gall of that. Who does he think he is? This mindset, this day we're in mindset is that you're not supposed to be strong in the Lord or bold with the word. I know the righteous that's here, bold is a lie. Well, you're not supposed to be bold because you offend people when you're bold or you wake them up one. And so we just sort of water down, let's let the thing slide. God help us. Now in closing, what can the righteous do? What are we supposed to do? Let's say in this room, we're out there in the, what land is that out there now? DVDCD land. What if there are various degrees of commitment to the Lord? In this room right now, all of us here, not everybody is as shroom as others, and some are just sort of walking, you know, not carefully, but just walking along, and others are just paying attention. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. What do you suppose if we said some people are really doing good, some people are not doing so good? You say, well, I know that. Some people are strong and are unwavering. They're legalistic and hard-headed, to tell you the truth. Some would say anybody that goes all out is considered to be extreme. I would to God we were all extreme. Every single one of us. You too. It's extreme. I mean, by that, I just mean totally into this thing. I mean, hands on the plow, looking ahead. One goal in life, and that is to seek first the kingdom of God 
and his righteousness. The right ways of God that you have committed yourself to stand on and become secure in and to live that way. What can we do? Various degrees here, various levels of growth. The first thing I would say to do is found in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 16. It says four things. Take heed unto yourself. How are you doing? This past year, how did you do spiritually? Do you talk about the Lord? Do you witness? Do you share the Lord with other people? Have you backed away? Are you not interested like you once were? How are you doing? First thing is take heed unto yourself. And secondly, unto the doctrine. What do you believe? How important is doctrine? One of the signs of the last day is that men will not endure sound doctrine. That doctrine is something that ministry is supposed to labor in. And congregations hate being indoctrinated. This deeper stuff and, you know, this teaching. They don't like it. That's what the Bible says. Labor in doctrine. Endure sound doctrine because you're going to have to fight with some of it. That other verse is 2 Timothy 4 and verse 3. Third thing he said to do is continue in them. Continue in what? The doctrine, what you've been taught. Don't back up. Don't quit. Don't say, well, I don't know if I'm ready for that. No, 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 no. You heard it. Continue in it. And fourthly, he said this to a preacher. But what a wonderful, exciting, magnificent promise it is. For in doing so, you shall not only save yourself, but all those who hear you. Let me ask you another question. If that verse is true, and I assume it is, then if we're willing to do the first three, what kind of anointing does God drop on that congregation to accomplish the fourth? To be saved. To be saved. Don't take saved for granted. You held your hand up. Once saved, always saved. No, better is once elect, always select. Not everybody that says they're saved are saved. You know, even a fair and honest Baptist person, preacher say, if you said to him, so you're telling me that if a man comes forward and he goes out there and blah, 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 and he say, well, he never really got saved. I said, now we're on the same page. Because if you're saved, you live saved. You act saved, you talk saved. If you say you're saved, but you don't do that, you deceive yourself. Isn't that James 1? If any man be a hearer and, and not a doer, he deceiveth his own self. Well, how can you tell who is saved? By their fruits. By the life that they lived since then. Those who strive on this foundation to make your calling and election sure. That's what you do. The second thing the righteous do is 1 Thessalonians 5.21 is to prove all things and hold fast to that which is good. I say it so much, but let me say it again. Don't take my word for it. Search the scriptures. All these things I said is more about wickedness. Is that really true? Because if it is, that's what you embrace. Not that you have to go out and tell everybody, y'all wicked. You don't have to do that. That's not our call. Our call is to proclaim Christ. It wouldn't be fun to dust your dust off of your shoes because people reject the Lord because that's wickedness too. But we got to know what we believe. We've got to know what we believe. Thirdly, as 2 Corinthians 10, 5, bring every thought captive to Christ because we're in a warfare. Bring every thought captive. How many times do you sit in here and so distracted by thinking of other things? What are you going to do after a while? Where are you going to eat? Who are you going to eat with? Where are you going to go tomorrow? Who are you going to hang out with? Boy, she looks good today. And then, boy, he's handsome. How many times do you need to capture your thoughts? In the brief time we're here, we've only been here an hour, 10 minutes, me preaching. That's not very long. I've got two minutes. Somewhere you get a hold of yourself and you say, look, we're not here long. Life on earth is brief. Heaven is forever. And so is hell. Make sure you are what you say you are and live like what you believe you are and trust God through your life. You bring every thought captive to Christ until you agree with him. 
Fourthly, Luke 13 and 24, strive to enter in at the narrow gate. Agonize. This is a fight you're in. The word fight, the good fight of faith, is the same word agonize. Fight. It's what a runner does. First Corinthians 9. It's not easy. You're challenged and tested, and you've got to hold fast. And fifthly, each one of these merits a whole week. But fifthly, as you take up your cross every day, that's what the righteous can do. This will take all your time, but this is what you do. We're here to learn how to live a life. And whether or not we live the life is a choice that we all make. We're all not perfect. Sometimes we're weak in areas we just haven't been strong in, but some are better than others. But we must all keep trying. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And then everything we need will come to us. So how's your foundation this morning? Is it solid? On Christ the solid rock I stand? Amen. Would you bow your head with me? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy and for your grace. If I've said anything this morning that shouldn't have been said, Lord, strike it from the memory of these people. If I have said the truth and held it not back, may they receive it and do likewise. Make us, O oh God, to be strong in the faith, enduring people, holding fast willing to esteem the riches of heaven more than all the earthly treasures that we put so much value on. Lord, may our cars and homes and hobbies and adventures, may they all pale in light of the revelation of heaven that we all need as you give it to us. These are your people, O oh Lord. They're not mine. These are your people. They're the sheep of your pasture. If there's any here that have never come to Christ, I pray that they will, that you'll grant them repentance and the gift of righteousness, that you'll bring them to you. Lead us this year, Lord, in this way. May our foundations never crack or crumble. May nobody rob us and cheat us or steal from us. May we hold fast and endure to the end. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.